You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this week, church family. Hope you're doing well. Y'all doing all right? Come on. Come on. Good to see you. So glad you're here. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me a couple of places we're going to anchor. We're going to look at a lot of text, but a couple of places we'll anchor. Luke chapter 2, if you want to hold your place there. And then eventually we'll land in Ephesians chapter 2. Luke 2, Ephesians 2. Uh, Again, so glad to be in this space. Uh, This has been such a gift. Our seventh week now here at Watermark. The Lord Lord has just been so kind to use them to hold us together. Uh, And as many of you know, next week will be our last week gathering here at Watermark. Because the Lord has saw fit to open the door to get us back into our building. Uh, On the 22nd, we will return to Northway and our property there. So we will be in the gym. It'll be tight, but we can dunk on each other. It's going to be awesome. We'll play some basketball while I preach. It'll be amazing. Uh, But that's that's here in a couple of weeks. Uh, This week, though, we are continuing in a four-week series here leading up to Christmas, uh, uh, launching the Advent season. And we're looking particularly these four weeks on four particular aspects about Jesus that were foreshadowed in the Old Testament and brought their fulfillment for us, the church, through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We're looking at the concepts of hope, peace, joy, and love, and how they find their fulfillment in Christ. Last week, we looked at the issue of hope, and uh, the hope is something we said the whole world's looking for. The The difference just comes to what type of hope are we talking about? Most of the worldly hope that we looked at last week we saw is rooted at best in a probability, maybe a possibility, fingers crossed kind of hope, wishful thinking, maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. But we saw last week, biblical hope is not like the world's hope. It's not a maybe. It's not a possibility. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. And it is offered through the coming of Jesus Christ and his conquering victory for us over sin and over Satan and over death. And he offers us a hope that is rooted in truth. It is a guarantee. It's an already just not yet. And it's coming. And in him and him alone, we can joyfully wait upon him Not for what might be, but what will be. Advent hope is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that is where our hope is meant to be rooted, not in lesser things. And what we're going to see this week is very similar when it comes to the idea of peace. The truth is, is similar to hope, peace is something the whole world around us is searching for, is looking for. The idea of peace in our modern vernacular as we use it in our culture uh, is something we use almost every single day when we talk about types of peace we're looking for. Uh, In many Eastern countries, uh, peace is a greeting that you give when you come to somebody, whether it's the Jew with Shalom or um, or with our, our Muslims, as uh, Salam Alaikum has come forward, the idea of peace unto you. In America, we don't greet with the word peace. We say farewell with peace. We hold up the deuces and we say peace. We'll see you later. That's how we extend our greetings on the way out the door, not the way in the door. And uh, yet we've got entire genres of culture in the West that have been defined by this idea of peace. The 60s, the whole mantra was peace. As the peace sign made its way onto many of tie-dye shirts, mantras of world peace have always been in the vernacular of 
of cultures around us, including our own. In the 90s, the idea of peace in the Middle East was very rampant uh, in our culture. And whether it's peace that we're praying for for the nations around us, the tensions, the hostilities that we're praying and asking for peace for between Israel and the Palestinians or between Sunnis and Shiites or between Democrats and Republicans or Cowboys and Redskins, whatever type of enmity that is around us, we are praying for that kind of peace to make its dwelling among us. In two weeks from now, we're going to see if Ray can bring peace to the galaxy once and for all after nine tries. Every single day, we talk about some idea of peace we need, whether it's in our decisions and we, somebody wants us to make a decision and we simply respond to, I don't, I don't know, I just, I, I, just, I just don't feel a peace about that. Uh, when it comes to our marriage and our parenting, we use this term a lot when the chaotic noise is all over our household and the estrogen is firing on all gears in our household and everybody's all lined up. And it's just crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It sounds a little like hell. And uh, what you'll hear at times when I come in and my wife needs a break is, can y'all just stop? All I want right now is just some peace and quiet. Just give me some peace. Give me this, give me this time alone where I can hear myself think. I just want this kind of peace. Whatever it is, we have a myriad of images that come to mind when we talk about the idea of peace. Webster even defines this kind of peace as a state of tranquility or quiet. We just want this serene, peaceful moment. Generally speaking, when we, in a worldly sense, are speaking about peace in all those kinds of areas, we are generally referring to the absence of conflict the absence of hostility, the absence of chaos, the absence of, of some sort of, of tension that is there, a period of time where there's, just, there's no conflict, no war, no tension, no enmity, just calm, stillness, and serenity is what we're, some sort of zen-like feature that we're hoping happens when we talk about peace. And there's an aspect of that that is good, that we all want that in our lives. But understand this, when it comes to a biblical definition of peace, as the scriptures define peace, not as the world defines it, that definition of the absence of conflict only gets you halfway. Because truthfully, biblically speaking, when we talk about peace, the peace that comes from God, it's not just the absence of conflict, but it also includes the presence of something even greater in order for it to be true biblical peace. In Hebrew, the most common term that's used is the term shalom. Um, when we get to the Greek and the New Testament, it'll be the word arine, which have the same connotations. Both of them are speaking to that which is complete, that which is whole, that which is at peace. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness, the presence of full restoration, and that is a kind of peace that only, only God himself can bring. There are so many examples of these words used in the scriptures. When you think about how you can translate peace, especially in the Old Testament, Joshua 8.31 is one example of those. After defeating their enemies at Ai, Joshua builds an altar to the Lord. And notice the kind of stones he asked for in Joshua 8.31. Just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the people of Israel 
as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones were what had to be used. The word uncut is the word shalom in the Hebrew. It means to be whole, to be complete. There's no divisions in the stones at all. They are a complete brick that is used in the building of the altar. Deuteronomy 25, verse 15, Moses is describing how you're not to have two different kinds of monetary measuring systems in your house, lest you try and cheat somebody with one measuring system and not the other one that's different. And he says this, instead, you're to have a full and fair weight, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land and that your Lord, your God is giving you. The term full that's used there in our Bibles is the term shalom. It means whole, means complete. We don't want differing scales. We want one that is whole together, full. In Genesis chapter 43, verse 27, relationally speaking, we can see shalom at present. After being betrayed by his brothers and sent into slavery, here's this famous scene when Joseph finally comes face to face with his brothers for the first time since his betrayal. And it says he inquired about their welfare. And he said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he he still alive? The the term welfare that's used there um, is the term shalom. Again, meaning whole, meaning complete. How are you doing? Are you whole right now? Are you, is shalom upon you? Or are there fractures relationally going on here? In all of these passages, again, the word for peace has the idea of not just the absence of disjointedness, but the presence of perfect alignment. When your life or your relationships or your world is broken apart, it is no longer whole. It is a need of shalom to be fully and wholly and completely restored as a people. Israel, God's covenant people, were called to use shalom as not just a noun, but a verb to bring shalom to the places and the situations and the people in which they inhabited. Jeremiah is a key uh, example of this in Jeremiah chapter 29. Even uh, an enslaved people here in Jeremiah 29, 7 They were to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In the city's shalom, you'll find your shalom. Um, As one theologian put it, this kind of shalom, this kind of peace that we're talking about in the scriptures, it's not just the putting down of the swords against your neighbor, it's picking up the silverware and inviting them to the table with you. That's biblical peace. It's, it's not just dropping the weapons, it's picking up the dinner utensils and finding a way around a table here to work together for one another's benefit. Often Israel would entrust their leaders, their kings, as the one to try to direct the shalom not only in Israel, but around them to the neighbors that they were entrusting with neighboring with. And if you've ever read First and Second Kings, you know that their kings did an awful job at doing this. 
They couldn't put down the weapons and usher in this kind of peace. Rather than seeking the shalom of God with their own people and those around them, their kings instead sought violence due to their own pride and their own prejudice, their own sin. And rather than shalom coming to the land, it actually led to their own re-enslavements over and over again. And so ultimately what Israel did, and you see this narrative all through the Old Testament, is they put their hope in the promise of a future king who would bring a shalom, a perfect shalom, not just the perfect absence of conflict, if we could all just get along, but we're talking about this perfect restoration of what was meant to be from the very beginning. And they put their hope, as we saw last week, in this king who could bring this kind of peace. You see examples of this, again, leading to these prophecies of a peace that would come. Go back to the series we did pre-tornado in Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9 says this, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. I will give shalom. There's a day coming where there will be a shalom that is given to God's people by God himself. And you see the details of that in Isaiah 52, verse 7. When this day of peace comes, he says, How beautiful upon the mountains will be the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes, literally proclaims, peace, shalom, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's the kind of peace that is so evident that when it comes, the other nations will look upon it and go, that is a God of peace. That is a people of peace under that reign. In Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 4, the prophet also tells us that the, the shalom that is to come actually won't be a what. It'll be a who. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And then as we saw even last week, one of the most famous passages at all of Christmas time is on Isaiah 9, when Isaiah 700 years before Jesus gave details of to who this how this who would come and who this who would be. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Isaiah promised there is a king who's going to come. He'll be born as a baby, but as he grows, he will give a peace that is unlike any peace you've ever seen in the world around you. And this is a type of peace that once it is given, it can never be taken away. And this peace will rule and reign over God's kingdom on earth forever. There is no end to this peace when it comes. And so for 700 years, Israel waited for the fulfillment of this promise to come. And then one night, 
under the darkness of sky in Bethlehem. If you turn with me to, again to Luke chapter 2, we're reminded of this classic story starting in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, as this announcement was made, imagine the sky filling up. There was suddenly, with that one angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. You think the angels read their Bibles? Read our Bibles? They do. Because they are quoting right here the hope that Israel had longed for for 700 years since Isaiah 9 was written that there will be a child that is given unto us and he will be the prince of peace and his peace will reign forever. And they longed for that peace to come and the angels come with this announcement and they declare to all and specifically to these lowly shepherds in those fields, your peace, your shalom is here. It's in him. You don't have to quit. You can quit looking for peace in all these other places as just the absence of conflict, you can put your hope in this peace now because this peace is not just the absence of conflict. Through this child that is born, it is the presence of wholeness that is about to come for you. A restoration like you've never seen before. A shalom that will cover you like no shalom ever has. Through his birth, if you notice in that passage, glory will ascend upward to God and peace will descend downward to man. But here's where Israel had a misunderstanding. In the first advent, that night, at that time in Israel's day, Jesus' primary objective was not to fully and finally end all hostilities between Israel and Rome. That is where Israel had a mistaken understanding of the peace that would be inaugurated. They read ahead to its ultimate consummation, which, yes, will come, but they didn't understand at this first advent, it wasn't about removing the hostility horizontally. It was about removing the hostility vertically. The same is with you and I. Before you can experience a horizontal shalom in your life, you must first experience a vertical shalom with God. Our greatest enemy, biblically speaking, isn't another religion. Our greatest enemy is not a political party. Our greatest enemy is not other nations 
that might threaten us. Our greatest enemy is not a different skin color than our own. No, our greatest enemy, biblically speaking, is God himself. Those horizontal enemies that we experience every day are simply the fruit of what has come from our own vertical brokenness before God, our own hostility with God. The penalty against God is significant. The scriptures tell us about this brokenness. We have passages like Colossians that says we were alienated with God. Passages like Romans 8 that talk about we were hostile towards God. We have Romans 5 that tells us we were enemies of God. This is every human being's condition from birth forward, from conception forward, is we are born into a hostility with God because of something our forefathers did before us in a garden. When man first sinned against God and disobeyed God and sought to be a God unto his own self. And from that moment forward in Genesis 3, there was an eternal hostility between God and man. And the penalty for high treason against God, which is what our sin was and is, is death. It is eternal separation from God. It is enmity. This is the condition of all men before and at the time of Jesus' birth. Thus, this announcement of peace to the shepherds was eternally significant. I love the way Tony Evans puts it in his brand new study Bible, or, or I should say, uh, biblical commentary. The first, by the way, biblical commentary of an African-American pastor. It's beautiful. If you haven't got your hands on it yet, I would tell, tell you right now, get it. But he says this concerning Luke chapter 2. The angelic announcement of peace on earth repeated so often at Christmas time is not about quiet tranquility or merely the absence of animosity between people. It is a declaration of the coming end of hostilities between a holy God and a sinful humanity through the atoning work of the Messiah. Peace with God. The Son of God came to pay the penalty for our sin and impute to us his righteousness. Only when we have been declared righteous by faith can we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace among people is only possible when humanity is living at peace with God and submitting to his kingdom rule. Paul said the same things that Tony Evans was quoting there in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, when Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It is only by believing by faith upon Jesus Christ and his work for you on the cross, Paul says, that that enmity between you and God can be stilled, that that wholeness can be restored. That is the only way you can have peace with God. Your religious merit will not earn you peace with God. Your simply trying to be nice to your neighbors will not earn you peace with God. Only the work of Jesus on the cross has satisfied the wrath of God towards our sin and has given us shalom in its presence. Paul also wrote to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, 
when he says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Church, this is the good news that both Isaiah prophesied would come and that the angels announced at Jesus's birth that through Jesus, God has not only ended the war between us and him, but he has picked up the silverware and has invited us to the table to join him in eternal fellowship. He has through Jesus has clothed you fully in his righteousness and adopted you as a son or a daughter of God into the family of God. In Jesus, you are fully forgiven. You are fully delighted in by the Father. And he has indwelt you with his presence and his power through the Holy Spirit to bring restorative healing into the brokenness of your life. To mend you and to bring you back into alignment for what he created you to be before sin corrupted it and took away that peace. Only in Christ can you have the world falling apart around you and yet be fully held together. When your peace is rooted in circumstantial tranquility, then you need to know your peace is just one more circumstance away from being taken away. But when your peace is rooted in Jesus Christ, you can experience an inner shalom that can never be taken from you. And it is sealed and secured in Christ for all eternity, no matter what non-tranquil circumstance you may walk through. You can have peace in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul was speaking about when he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4, when he said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result of that is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Church, did you just hear that promise? The Bible does not offer you a peaceful and tranquil life. If anything, it will be the opposite. You will endure suffering and hardship and persecution, especially for following Jesus, let alone just for being human. But there is a type of peace that is different from the world's peace. The world is looking for a peace that is just the absence of conflict. But the scripture tells us there is a greater peace offered to you in Jesus Christ that doesn't just end the conflict, but actually restores you in such a way that you are given a peace of God through the Holy Spirit in accordance to the promises of his word that are able to guard like a shield about your mind, the thoughts that you think, and your heart, the feelings you feel, and the actions that are betrayed out of those. They can all be guarded by a type of peace that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's the reason why there are so many testimonies of Christians and in this room right now of people who have been through some of the worst sufferings possible. And it doesn't mean you don't feel pain and it doesn't mean that you don't grieve and mourn. It doesn't mean you don't long for a better day. 
but it means there was an anchor for you in the midst of that storm that guarded you, that reminded you that somebody's got you, that there is a wholeness about you even when everything around you is falling apart. Only the testimony of a Christian who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ can experience that kind of peace. And that's what Jesus has come to offer us. Now, once this vertical peace is yours between God, out of that now flows a horizontal peace that can be extended through the believer unto the world around us. And this is very interesting. This is, flip over to Ephesians chapter two. This is where I want you to see this last picture of biblical peace here. And what you need to know is all this language that we're about to read in a couple of verses is framed around how the temple was set up. And so here's what I want you to do. I want to throw this picture of the temple up on the screen here. We have that picture. There it is. In the temple, which the Jews would gather to worship Yahweh, to worship God, there were divisions in the temple that were created as boundary markers to keep certain groups of people away from one another so they could not worship the same God as one. They would be separated in worship. You had five areas with four dividing walls. You had the Holy of Holies, which was the very top left one in the temple that nobody could go into the inner sanctuary where the presence of God dwelt except for one person one time a year. The high priest could go in there to sprinkle and the day of atonement, the blood of the red heifer sacrifice on that altar one day of year. But otherwise there is a boundary. Nobody goes into the presence of God. No sinful human being can enter into the presence of God and live. And then there is another barrier just outside of that is the courtyard of the priest. It was nearest to the altar. And that was the place that only the priest could go who would make the sacrifices for the people uh, on their behalf before God. But only the priest could go in that area. And then just outside of that, you had the priest of the Israelites, which was for every Jewish male could go into that courtyards surrounding the temple and gather in there, but the women could not. There is a barrier there that only the men, the court of the Jews in that middle area could enjoy together. And then you go outside that first major wall and you enter into the women's courtyard. And this is where the women would gather to pray and to worship, but they could not go in. But then even more so came another boundary marker that's prescribed nowhere. Where that blue line is, you go on the outside and you have what is the court of the Gentiles. And you've got to go about 14 to 20 feet down on the edge of a cliff where the Gentiles would gather. And it was clearly stated to the Gentiles that if you went past that wall, you could be arrested or killed. That wall tells you what Israel thought about the Gentiles. A dividing wall or a barrier was put up so that those Gentiles could not get near the covenant people of God to worship God with the Jews together as one. Why? Because you were beneath them as a Gentile. And thus you were cut off from fellowship. It was a wall of hostility. Now, knowing all of that, listen to this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. When Paul writes to this church who has now received peace,
peace with God vertically through Jesus Christ. Listen to the ensuing results. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, that is Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Which wall are we talking about? It's a barrier between them physically that they saw every single day. And he's done so by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you, the Gentile, who were far off, and peace to you, the Jew, who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure of this new temple here is being joined together, grows now into the holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Y'all, there is not a treaty in the world that a man can sign that can make this kind of peace between two people. It does not exist. The best man's peace can do is temporarily put down some swords, but God's peace has the ability to pick back up some silverware and bring the two former enemies to the same table of fellowship together for all eternity, making us one in Christ Jesus. Church, the hope of the first advent is that the Prince of Peace has come. He has ended your hostility with God, my hostility with God. He has ended it while also establishing a new man in Christ called the church where the shalom of God reigns between us. And while we still may walk in a broken world, you need to know this. You have two major promises you can hold on to right now concerning this kind of peace. Number one, this peace is available to you right now through Jesus Christ. They can guard your heart and mind as you labor in a broken world for his glory. It can protect you and give you peace. But secondly, there is a promise of a second advent that is still to come. A second advent where Christ will fulfill the second half of Isaiah 9-7. A peace that will rule and reign on this earth forever, not just vertically, but horizontally. There's a day coming when every weapon will be overthrown. And even us Texas gun lovers will gladly give them up in that day. 
There will be no more need because there will be the end of all hostility on the earth. Can you fathom that? That peace is promised to us. It is a guarantee. You can take it to the bank. Jesus will bring it in his second advent once and for all. Can I just tell you this? This Christmas, if you are in here and you have never experienced the type of peace that we have read about, a peace that has been offered to you that will end the enmity between you and God to where you can be reconciled to your heavenly father once and for all and enjoy the eternal shalom that he has given you in your inner being that will guard you and anchor you and solidify you and restore you and heal you. Oh, can I invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Surrender your life unto Jesus Christ and be saved and experience the shalom of God. To the church, this peace is one in which the angels told us, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, let there be peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is our peace to receive and enjoy. And I can't think of a greater way to remember that peace than remembering through communion together right now. So I'd love to invite our, our members who are helping out with communion to go ahead and make your way to the back, grab those elements. Church, what, a, what good news it is that we've been given this kind of peace, amen? Like this is our hope. We, we don't have hope like the rest of the world hopes and we don't have a peace like the rest of the world has peace. Our peace is fully fully whole in Jesus Christ. And then we remember each week of what it is Christ has given us by remembering his death for us through the observance of communion. Communion is a symbolic, it's a memorial meal in which we remember what has been given to us. It's very sacred unto the church. It's an ordinance that was instituted by Jesus Christ himself. And each week here at Northway, we take these two elements that have been celebrated for millennia, and we remember also what it is our Savior has done for us. When he held up the bread and he reminded his disciples and thus is reminding us that the bread is his body that has been broken for us. There was a hostility between us and God that demanded a sacrifice. It demanded our own death. And Jesus came to earth as that child in Bethlehem and then grew up and, and walked through and endured the sufferings that we demanded for our sin and took the death that we deserved for our sin. He gave his body for us. And then Christ also held up the cup in that meal and said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. You needed a blood payment in order to satisfy the wrath of God. That's why that one time a year when the Holy of Holies, when the high priest goes in, he sprinkles that blood on that altar seven times on the mercy seat, covering it, which is another word that we get for propitiation, a big fancy word that means to save off the wrath of God, to satisfy the wrath of God and in its place, receive his peace. So church, in just a moment, I'll pray for us. And as you feel led, we'll have the ushers come down as they lead you and we'll 
now have you dismissed row by row and we'll come up fourth here to these stations. You'll take the bread, dip it in the juice and be reminded of Christ's body, Christ's blood for you that has given you a peace that the world will never be able to offer you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the peace that you have given us through Jesus Christ. Father, I just confess that just like we saw last week, all too often, I settle for a cheaper peace, just like I settle for a cheaper hope. God, would you protect us from that? There are so many carrots of peace all around us that we are striving for just because we want tranquility, we want serenity, we want to be free from chaos. But oh Lord, you remind us we need so much more than that. We need wholeness. We need restoration. We need forgiveness. We, we need to be reconciled unto you. And that is what you have given us through Jesus Christ. And that brings with it a kind of peace that no other peace can match. Would you fill us with that peace this evening? Would you remind us of what has been given to us through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ? We pray for your glory, for our peace. In Jesus' name.